Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello, you're listening to the Times Red Box Politics Podcast. I'm Patrick Maguire, and today I am staging a coup. Yes, that's right. Matt Shirley is never coming back. Or is he? Today we're talking about that with an expert panel. How do you stage a coup just a couple of weeks after Niger experienced one of the latest coups in Africa? You don't want to miss that. It's a fascinating discussion of the history of coups and indeed the future of the African continent. But before all of that, it's time for the Economist panel. Manveen Rana and someone called Matthew on Times Radio. Yes, I'm joined by Manveen Rana, host of the Stories of Our Times podcast. Hello, Manveen. Hello. And today's someone called Matthew. That Matthew is Matthew Bell. Hello, Matthew. Hello, Patrick. Hi, how are you? Uh, great. Uh, very, uh, very good. Very good, thank you. Um, good, good. I'm, I'm well. Uh, and I don't think we've ever spoken before, so welcome. We haven't. Well, well done for toppling Matt. You've done a great job. So I know, far. I know. Let's see. I'm, I might, I might subject myself to a democratic election once the transition is complete. I'm not sure. I'm confident I win it though. Uh, right. Uh, let's get straight into it, shall we? Front page of this morning's Times: uh, Rishi Sunak pledging Britons will be better off next year. Uh, he wants to maintain discipline on public spending and tax. He thinks the plan is working, Manveen. His economic plan and inflation did fall uh, yesterday for the second month in a row. But do you think voters are going to feel it? No, no. I mean, it's sort of, um, it had the feeling of somebody in number 10 had clearly said to him, you need to be a little bit more boosterish. You know, that's how Boris Johnson did it. It made people feel a bit better, go out and be boosterish. And he's sort of saying the right things if you're just reading the script, but I'm not sure anyone's buying them. Um, you know, inflation did fall a bit. But I'm not sure most people have really noticed that. You know, their weekly shopping bill is still very high. Um, Wages are are slowly edging up to try and compensate for that. But, um, you know, I don't think anyone feels any great confidence about where they'll be in a year's time. And I also thought it was sort of, you know, he's made exactly this promise before and not met it. Um, Inflation is something he can try and control, but not very effectively. Um, You know, we we don't know what will happen with the war in Ukraine. We don't know if energy prices where they'll be in a year's time. If if the grain exports keep getting stuck, we don't know what will happen to food and food price inflation. Mm. You know, it, there's so much that he can't really control. So it just feels like sort of a slightly hollow, empty, boosterish but meaningless promise. Boosterish but meaningless. That's uh, 
That's pretty harsh, Manveen. Matthew, what do you think? Do you think the Prime Minister's talking about relaunching himself, resetting himself in September? What do you make of that? Does he need to? Well, I think the timing of this interview is all we need to know about. It's, you know, why has he chosen today to give an interview to the Times? It's because there's been the first glimmer of good news, the first nugget of anything remotely uh, good happening for him. Um, and so he's able to it's say that... a while. <laughs> exactly. But, you know, had he done it last week, what would we be talking about? We'd be talking about the barge off Dorset. Uh, we'd be talking about the other pledges that aren't working. But, you know, this, he's clinging on and his pledge was to halve inflation. Well, this, he hasn't halved inflation. There's been, I think, two months where inflation has come down by a percentage point, but it's expected to go back up again next month. And they know that already. So it's, it's you know, it's, it's, it's very political of him. And that's what we're seeing from Rishi Sunak is I was very hopeful when he when he first came in because He's clearly a much more competent and, and the right uh, prime minister than the last two conservative prime ministers we've had. But on the other hand, he's just far too political. And all, all, all he seems to be thinking about is the next day, the next week. He's not looking at the broader picture. And he really, he's got a golden opportunity until the election to get a lot of things done, a lot of interesting things done. But he's, he doesn't seem to be taking that opportunity to do anything. He's really just clinging on to scraps of good news and good headlines when they come along. Criticising um, a poli- politician for so being I political think, is know, a bit uh, rum, Matthew. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's being, um, he's, he's clinging on to um, to, to a, good, a bit of good news, um, you know, and, and, and that's fair enough. But um, he really should be um, uh, launching more ambitious ideals than, than saying, look, we're, the inflation's gone up by one percentage point this month. I mean, that's not that's not great news, really. It's, it's, it, there's a lot more to be done. More to be done, Manveen, do you agree? Yeah, I do. And I also agree with the point that, you know, he's being very political. And I think, actually, it doesn't come naturally to him. So he's doing it really badly. Um, and it just means that, you know, even in this interview... He points out the things about him, which I think made him quite refreshing. We thought, you know, could be quite hopeful as a politician and that he has a hinterland. You know, he says he's the right person to be in charge of the economy, to be running the country at a time where technology is changing. And, you know, he's, we know he spent years in America and working with Goldman Sachs and various bits of the financial system that, you know, look ahead to big changes like this. You know, there, there are skills and attributes that he has that he could be bringing to the job that would, you know, mean that he's looking at things differently. There's a bit of blue skies thinking. But actually, I think, as Matthew said, I think he's caught up in the day-to-day, what can I do that Labour isn't doing? So, you know, he ends up in the same interview, sort of criticising Labour for their green pledges um, and sort of saying that they will endanger inflation and, and economic growth when, you know, as a man who worked in America a lot, you know, just looking at what America is doing with their Inflation Reduction Act, which has led to their economy doing much better um, which is all about green subsidies. So it's just, it feels like he's he's probably not being very authentic to the things that he really believes either. You know, he's not looking at this in, in even the, the boring economist way, which is the, one of the things that we thought he would bring to the job um, because he's trying to be political and just not doing it very well. Well, what's the Rishi Sunak you expected then? Because I think this is something people often get wrong about Rishi Sunak, the idea that he's a, you know, bland technocrat and not sort of, he is sort of intensely political. He's, you know, a sort of... Uh, I was going to say blue-blooded conservative. Blue-blooded means something a little bit different in uh, in 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 our uh, in our vernacular. But you know, you know what I mean. He is yeah. a he is a conviction Thatcherite, yeah. and I think his colleagues often he, forget that he, about him. You know, I th- I think he is. He's he's a conviction Thatcherite. He's a conviction Brexiteer. You know, all of those things. I think we knew, but because he hadn't been in politics very long, I think there was sort of a sense that this is a man who isn't a natural politician. What he's bringing to the job, hopefully. Um, you know, certainly when he sort of first appeared miraculously as chancellor, he sort of thought he'd, he's bringing 
the skills of the outside world. He's bringing sort of a level of competence um, and a decision-making process which will be influenced by bigger thoughts about the economy rather than about politics. And I think that's where things are going wrong. But he's not doing the Goldman Sachs mm. sort of thinking about, well, you know, in the interview, he talks about technology and how the economy should be changing. And yet that's not how he's running government or how he's he's even running these interviews you know he's still sort of using it to snipe at at, at labor over and, and you know the things he's been saying about green energy uh and putting sort of some of that on on a on a, a back burner uh i think is you know a not playing very well with the electorate but also it just sort of seems economically as as that the big sort of goldman sachs what is the future what, what's the economic vision i'm not sure I, i'm not sure it really washes but anyone in his position would be seeking to tell a story about his leadership and snipe at the opposition. I think isn't that just isn't that just, just true politics sounds, from Rishi Sunak? Or is your objection that it doesn't convincing. sound prime ministerial or convincing? I don't think it sounds convincing. I think you sort of, you know, that that's fine. And then you get to the end of the sentence and think, but what does that mean? You know, mm. he's promising he'll lower inflation and increase economic growth next by next year. No sense of how. Uh, and, you know, lowering inflation doesn't necessarily mean you're going to boost economic growth. And he hasn't explained what his big sort of growth policy is. Um, he's sniping at the one thing, you know, Labour's, I mean, I don't know how committed Labour is to this policy either, to be honest. So, you know, I'm not sort of saying Labour will get any better. But the one thing that America has managed to use in order to both lower inflation and aid the economy, he's sort of pointing out as a mistake. So I, I just, I feel like it's not very consistent. I don't really know what he believes apart from the things will be better next year, but I just don't know how we get there. I think that's the problem. It's not very convincing. Speaking of the economy, Matthew, we're going to look at some really interesting data. The UK is seeing its cohort of millionaires fall from 2.99 million to 2.56 million in 2022. Uh, that's 4.3%, though, of the entire country. We're sixth in the leaderboard worldwide uh, for uh, millionaires, uh, according to research done by the bank UBS. Uh, the findings have outraged most uh, many people on the uh, left in France. But how do, you, uh, how do you think they'll go down here? I mean, being a millionaire, you know, that famous aspiration of Del Boy and Rodney, this time next year will be millionaires. How do you think people will uh, look at these figures here? Well, of course, we all want to be millionaires. But I think the first thing to say about this data, just um, before we go any further, is that it's millionaires in terms of American dollars. Mm. So of course, but, you know, we must factor in the exchange rate. Um, and so um, in, in part of this research has shown that now France has more millionaires than we do. So we sort of slipped down the millionaire rankings. But it spring, makes me think of uh, Peter Mandelson when I heard this news, who said, you know, of course, famously in the 90s, he was intensely relaxed about people getting filthy rich. As so long, long as, as they, they paid their taxes, yeah. Exactly. And I think that's, you know, the caveat we've all got to add at the end. It's like, of course, it's great. To, you know, we all want to get really thinking rich, but we all have a duty to pay our taxes. And I think the bigger problem with Britain is, is that a lot of people are... Are getting very rich and, and richer, uh, but they're not paying their taxes because we've got such a um, well, it's you know, it's a, a sort of complicated accounting system whereby it's very easy not to pay um, the tax that you owe. So, but tax is another subject. Um, I think also when you look at these um, these these uh, tables of data, I think you need to think look at the other end and look at the uh, the, the poverty index and how many people are there in Britain. Um, getting getting poorer. So we've got to look at the figures both uh, from both angles, I think. But um, yeah, of course, we all want to get really rich. So um, that, that's that's great news. But um, um, let's not get carried away. <laughs> yeah, what does it say that our uh, our share of millionaires is, uh, is falling, Manveen? Well, I mean, actually, like, like Matthew, I did suddenly think of the tax because I, I, I sort of wonder if you had 
Um, if you sort of were able to level that that table for tax policies in each, each country, whether you'd get a different result, because these are presumably are declared millionaires. And I wonder if actually sort of like the tax system in some countries means that you've probably got more millionaires than are, are necessarily public. Um, but, you know, I, I sort of think, again, like Matthew, I think actually a lot of it comes down to the the range of how much people are earning in a country. You sort of you don't want it to be wildly out of kilter. You know, it's great having lots of millionaires because you hope, as Liz trusted, that there will be a trickle down effect. But if the people at the bottom of the scale aren't getting any richer, then you know, actually things are just going to, you know, the property prices will go up in, in an unaffordable way. You know, it sort of has uh, a terrible effect on people who can't afford to get along. Um, I thought it was interesting that sort of with this table, you know, France has come out as number three and and actually it seems to have led to a, a real public debate in France whether this is a good thing. <laughs> they yeah, seem yeah, very yeah. anti. You know, sort of it's a cornerstone of French identity, sort of equality, you know, post-revolutionary. That uh, post-revolutionary politics, interesting, obviously we never had a... Uh, violent revolution in in this country and you know, Macron is yeah yeah not yet not yet we are doing a we are doing a big thing at 11 o'clock on how to stage a coup so uh, oh you know, well <laughs> in that case it's in the offing well indeed maybe people will get ideas but you know as you were saying Emmanuel Macron has long been criticised for being a president of the rich uh, you know you see him uh, you know breaking bread with Elton John on the night riots are happening in the in the Bonneau so yeah it's very interesting uh, right that's quite enough about millionaires or indeed let's talk about a different kind of millionaire and footballers. Um, I don't know about, if either of you caught the football yesterday, but where do you stand on Keir Starmer's uh, suggestion of a world uh, of a bank holiday if we win the World Cup on on Sunday? Well, it's a genius political move because who's going to argue against him? Um, and and to say <laughs> the no, Treasury might—they hate bank holidays. <laughs> well, that's true, and it looks like the Tories aren't going to—they're not going to cave. They're not going to give us a bank holiday. And in fact, they they have never done. The government has never given a bank holiday for a sporting event. So it's interesting that they only give us extra bank holidays for royal events, like the royal wedding in 2011 uh, and the Queen's Jubilee. But um, yeah, of course, you know. Uh, if you're in opposition, you've got to say we've got to have a bank holiday. And actually, I do actually think, you know, this is it's an important moment for women's sport. So if they're ever going to give a, a bank holiday for a sporting event, which they didn't for the Ashes, they didn't for uh, so many other things when, you know, we've, there's been calls for a bank holiday. If you're going to do it, the really the time to do it is when a women's team is winning uh, an international tournament as, as huge as the World Cup. And it is incredible. It's completely unbelievable that this Sunday we might actually win the World Cup. Uh, you know, England has not won a World Cup since 1966. It's, it's, it's huge news. And yet part of me thinks, well, I mean, personally, I hate bank holidays because I don't have a job. So it doesn't mean anything to me whether I have a, <laughs> it's another day of not earning money. But, this um, is hard work, Matthew. But, but the people oh, oh, around yes. you are a yes, bit happier. Yes, exactly, exactly. But it is bad for the economy. You know, they, they crunch the numbers and it looks like the economy always suffers by half a percentage point because, you know, you've got a cafe next to an office. Well, you're not open, you're not making money. So it's mm. not great for everyone a bank holiday and also there are other ways of celebrating uh, sporting victories other than going getting pissed on a Monday and then having a hangover on a Tuesday but uh, are okay. you prepared to argue against that Manveen? Well I think I think it would be great to have a bank holiday because you know I know we've, we've had successes with the Ashes but they, you know they, they come around much more often whereas in 1966 and this is the Lionesses we know that um, female football has sort of been suppressed in this country you know we we know that they were the, the fa stopped well, banned them for playing. decades and decades that's yeah. what i mean so you know actually so it would feel like a good you know emotionally it feels like sort of a good time to repay a, a historical injustice you know it sort of feels like it, it which should be celebrated it should be a big national moment and, and a, and a mag holiday seems like a good one on the economy i just i just have to say i think 
Uh, you know, people wheel out these figures from about 10 years ago. Somebody did a study saying it costs more than a billion or two billion every time we have a bank holiday. But I think actually that's been challenged quite a lot because, mm. you know, we have fewer bank holidays in this country than the rest of Europe. And yet our productivity is lower in this country than the rest of Europe. Um, you know, and, and there is an argument that this actually sort of boosts productivity in the in the long term um there's also sort of a question of you know if you have a bank holiday on a friday apparently it costs the economy less so there are ways around it you that's know, really sort of, interesting that's yeah really so interesting. I, I sort of think it's it's worth us sort of reassessing it feels like it, it, it's something we always assume but it's worth us looking at it again because it's very hard to properly quantify you know we know that although businesses are closed people go out much more on bank holidays you know there, there are sort of boosts to the economy too so it's probably worth somebody somewhere doing another study again to work out just, just you know, whether actually we should be having more bank holidays, full stop. Uh, it's interesting I think we, we have about the... eight and the rest of Europe has about 11. So, you know, we've got space mm. there for at least another three. <laughs> I, I, quite possibly. I mean, it's interesting you mentioned the productivity piece. It was interesting. In those economic figures we were talking about yesterday, productivity was only up 0.1%. So that's a sort of missing piece of the puzzle. Uh, right. We're talking about politicians, football, how they should respond to the Lionesses' uh, victory yesterday and final on Sunday. Ed Davey, the leader of the Liberal Democrats, uh, certainly uh, certainly tried yesterday. He posted a picture of himself uh, enjoying the football, uh, so to speak, in what is clearly a staged photo and not a candid moment. Ed Davey is standing around a small pub table with a pint, with a clenched fist to demonstrate his passion, his very authentic passion. And he's not the first politician, of course, to show off their football-watching credentials. Boris Johnson, Keir Starmer, Sir Lindsay Hoyle and many, many more have all been guilty of this sort of thing. Jack Hill, the Times' chief news photographer, may have even captured a few of them in the act. How are you, Jack? Morning, morning, Patrick. I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I'm very well. Great to have you. I mean, I just need to get your uh, photographer's assessment of Ed Davies' moment in the pub yesterday. Where does that rank in the you know, the, in the obviously staged pictures you've seen of people watching football over the years. Well, as, as you're aware, there's, there's a long history of these things. I mean, it, it, the picture is, is is quite funny from yesterday. Uh, but they, they, the politicians have been doing it for a while. I mean, they, uh, we see Rishi Sunak did it, uh, I think, in the Euros final, as, mm. it, as did uh, Keir Starmer. I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's, these things are sort of attempts to uh, connect with the sort of common man and woman uh who make up the majority of this country and they you know and they, they try to do it but i think you can see through uh the inauthenticity of them uh so in some ways they backfire and look slightly creepy uh but that, <laughs> that's my take on it uh, talk us through the sort of choreography of doing you know of sort of posing one of these shots would would the photographer have been in front of ed davies saying go on give us a cheer ed that sort of thing uh, I was talking to the picture editor about it this morning because I wondered where the picture had come from because sometimes they come from pool events mm. uh, where one of us might be at uh, to photograph and, and, and share the pictures with the, the rest of the, the, the press. Uh, this looks like it was taken by one of his own people uh, purely for his Twitter feed. Uh, and I can imagine, as you described, someone has stood in front and said, look, let's re recreate the goal or look at the screen and cheer as if there's been a goal. And obviously Ed, Ed Davey does it with uh, some uh, faux enthusiasm, whereas everyone else sort of looks slightly bemused. This is a whole, it was obviously early, but there's only two drinks on the table as well, and no one else in the pub. Yeah, no one else in the pub. That's the funny thing. He, you know, he he tried, he tried manfully. Um, you've got a lovely picture of another politician in the from uh, in the Times today. Lovely portrait of Rishi Sunak on the train to Leicester. You know, he's got his file in front of him. Takeaway coffee, half-eaten sandwiches. Um, how is he to photograph? You've photographed him a few times now. 
how does how does how is he as a sort of subject? Uh, I think you know he, he's a he's a good subject. I mean, I think I think what we find now is that the, the politicians, the senior politicians, are extremely uh, aware. Uh, and sensitive to how they're seen visually and and want to be seen well i mean if if, if just to, to just looking at the numbers of photographers there are now in whitehall and downing street mm. tells you how important they see it he's a good subject he's obviously a busy man uh the things on the table in front of him weren't props uh he did bring that piece of cake it was a piece of cake that he ah, bought it's not a sandwich uh he's got a bit of a sweet tooth and he, he every time i photographed him he's got a cup of something and a sweet uh pastry beside him uh, but he, he's good, but he, he was busy. Uh, he wanted to prepare for this uh, PM Connect event uh, in, in Leicester. And I don't know if you saw the picture that was in the paper. Yeah, well, he's sort of looking very happy, like, you know, and, and at ease, which is not something you often see Prime Ministers under pressure looking like. Thank you very much, Jack Hill, Chief News Photographer of The Times, and to Manveen Rana and Matthew Bell, today's columnist panel. Don't go anywhere, because we're going to stage a coup shortly. You're listening to the Times Redbox Politics Podcast. Now we're staging a coup. The Big Thing on Times Radio. And we're talking about how to stage a coup d'etat. Uh, that is an illegal attempt to overthrow a government. How does one stage a coup? And why would one stage a coup? Now, I should clarify, I'm not planning on taking over Matt Chorley's show while he is away. But we have noticed that coups are becoming much more frequent. Uh, Niger is just the latest African nation to see its nation, uh, see its leaders deposed by the military. 13% of African countries have seen coup attempts between 2020 and 2022. That's a six-fold increase from just four years earlier. And that led the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, to declare that military coups are back. So today we're going to find out how and why a coup comes about. And we're going to start in that very continent of Africa with the Times, Africa correspondent Jane Flanagan, who's been following the most recent coup in Niger. Hello, Jane. Um, hi, Patrick. Uh, so what motivated uh, that coup we saw just a couple of weeks ago in Niger? Well, it does have the hallmarks of just a very old-fashioned palace push rather than um, any sort of ideological motive emerging. It appears that uh, General Chiani, who was uh, the head of the presidential guard and actually with the task of being alert to these sorts of threats um, was uh, at risk of being removed from his post and decided to manoeuvre against President Bazoum and, and, and got colleagues together and 
uh, and they barricaded him into the the presidential palace there and declared themselves the new leaders of Niger. I mean, they have blamed uh, the worsening insurgency and uh, economic mismanagement for uh, the power grab, but actually Niger had done much better than its neighbours in battling uh, jihadist extremists. And, and so it does seem that actually the motivation was that he didn't want to be out of a job. And what was the reaction within Niger from its people? Well, there has been some evidence of support for the new junta. I mean, they did fill a football stadium um, shortly after um, uh, the general declared himself the new ruler. But it's quite easy to get um, some anti-French feeling uh, going on mm. and, and blame the international community for the problems of Niger. And, and, and we've seen that coup leaders across Africa um, in the former um French colonies are very successful in doing this, um, presenting Bazuma as a puppet of the West and, and blaming that for keeping people in poverty and so on. Uh, so where is Bazoum? Has he been sent to prison or is he in exile? No, he's still at the presidential palace now. He's been there for three weeks. He's been held with his wife and his son. We understand in very difficult conditions, food supplies are dwindling, uh, the power cuts because uh, Nigeria is part of uh, a regional sanction has, uh, has cut off power to Niger. He has re refused to resign and the junta have now said they're going to try him for high treason for undermining the security of the country uh, because he's been in touch with uh, regional heads of state and also the US Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken. It does seem to, to me to be quite odd that um, the UN and President Biden have expressed um, concerns for his well-being because mm -hmm. of the conditions in which he's being held. But at the same time, he seems to have access, had access to his mobile phone to make all these calls and even file an op-ed to the Washington Post warning of the dire international consequences to this coup. So it does seem quite um, odd uh, conditions in which he's being held. So you talk, you talk about international opprobrium. Is this coup like to be reversed either internally or with, uh, with foreign intervention? Well, I mean, for, for quite a sort of ragtag bunch, they've dug in and, uh, you know, appointed a new cabinet. They've managed to cling on now for three weeks. And there is a, a limited window when power grabs like this can be reversed. And at the moment, they've, they've resisted, you know, threats of military um, action, threats of having aid cut. Um, Nigeria and the ECOWAS economic uh, bloc there in West Africa have already imposed quite harsh sanctions. But at the moment, they just seem absolutely um, to be humbling all the pressures that, uh, that can be brought to bear on them. And this is the fifth coup in Niger since its independence from France in 1960, uh, but it's its first since 2010. Um, we were just talking about the number of African states that have uh, seen mm. coups in recent years. Do you think this is becoming something of an, an epidemic? Well, certainly, you know, coups seem to come in, in waves, and at the moment there does seem to be a sort of contagion, and this is, I think this is explains why the regional leaders in, the, in West Africa have taken such a, a hard stance, threatening military intervention, which is unusual for them, because I think they're feeling very nervous about their own positions. You only have to look at a map of, Afri of Africa and the coup belt across its widest point from Sudan in the east to Guinea in the far west. Niger was um, the missing piece, really, in now connecting this corridor. So I think, yes, I, I think they've got every reason, all the... The, the countries in that area, all the leaders to feel very nervous about what their military are thinking about this.
Uh, thanks very much, Jane. That was Jane Flanagan, uh, Africa correspondent at The Times. And now, Jane was explaining there what exactly is a coup. Now, someone who knows an awful lot more about this is Dr. Mawita Chacha, Assistant Professor in International Relations at the University of Birmingham, and Michael Binion, veteran correspondent for The Times, who joins me in the studio. Uh, Mawita, let's start with you. Uh, define for us, in the simplest possible terms, what exactly is a coup, and does what's happened in Niger follow that traditional playbook? Thank you for having me on your show. Uh, so when you think about a coup, we're thinking of an illegal paragraph usually done by the armed forces or other political elites. And what coups aim to do is to unseat the incumbent president, or in this case, the incumbent government, and replace it with another. And there's usually uh, a discussion or a debate as to what counts as a successful coup. Um, does it mean that the coup should, or the, the, the coup perpetrators should have held power by, uh, say, uh, for, for a week or for a month? But I mean, that's irrelevant in this particular uh, situation because at the end of the day, what we are observing in the case of Niger is that uh, the head of the presidential guard, uh, Chiani, who happened to be part of the elite, uh, replaced or chose to oust the incumbent president, uh, Mohamed Bazoum. So you see the same trajectory where it's an illegal power grab. Um, and the aim is to replace this incumbent with uh, another leader, another person as, as being the, the leader of Niger. Uh, Michael Binion, in your 50 years at the Times, you've covered and written about many a coup. How does Niger compare, do you think? Well, it's a classic African pattern, and I'm afraid uh, just nearby uh, we see the, the, the prime example of coups, which is Nigeria, which is potentially a very rich, prosperous country, which has basically been held back for years by endless attempts to manoeuvre and oust the government. They've had five successful coups, military coups, three unsuccessful ones. They've had a military government for 33 years, between 66 and 99. Uh, and uh, we're only now entering into a period of relative stability uh, and uh, peaceful democratic government. But um, some of the coups have been very bloody. Some have led to the uh, instalment of people who were frankly dreadful dictators. Sani Abacha was probably the worst and the last one. Uh, and uh, Nigeria is one of many countries in the region. But I've also seen coups elsewhere. I suppose the most spectacular one, one I covered uh, partly, uh, was one that didn't uh, go well at all, which was the attempt to oust Gorbachev. Well, we'll speak about that in just a moment. I really look forward to your memories of that. But Moita, you've picked out three of the coups that have had the biggest impact on world history, in your view. Let's start in Czechoslovakia in February 1948. Talk us through what happened there. And in fact, we can hear a clip of what happened there. Terror has already been unleashed in its full fury in Czechoslovakia and will be greater than in the countries of Eastern Europe because it will be all the more difficult, if not impossible, for a truly democratic people to become accustomed to slavery. Uh, talk us through this one, Moita. So what happened here was uh, the Soviet-backed uh, Czechoslovak Communist Party um, took over power. And this was a time, uh, as, as some of us may recall, um, it was the early phase of the Cold War, and the U.S. Uh, was considering how to go about dealing with the Soviet Union, how to go about uh, rebuilding Europe. And so this uh, coup happens in Czechoslovakia, and we see in the U.S. Uh, an increased uh, um, 
you could say support for the Marshall Plan, the, the plan to aid the recovery of Europe. Because at the time, prior to this coup, uh, some in, in the US Congress were a bit hesitant as to whether this amount of money should go to aid Europe or not. But then the coup happens and the tensions between the US and the Soviet Union are heightened and there's this increased support for, for the Marshall Plan. At the same time, I think that those who could link uh, the, the Czechoslovakia coup uh, with increased support and increases of to establish NATO, which we see being established uh, in 1949, a year after uh, this February 1948 coup. And why was this such a significant moment in the history of, uh, of post-war Europe, Michael? Well, because it, it showed that the Soviet Union had total dominance over uh, all Eastern Europe, all the places they had uh, liberated from Nazi Germany, but uh, where they remained with their forces. And it was simply implementing Stalin's view that there should be total Soviet control and a buffer zone over uh, the Soviet Union's neighbours. So the whole of the Warsaw Pact, as it then became, was communist. And in fact, it then was clear that no country, having become communist, would be allowed to revert from from that state. So when uh, Czechoslovakia, for example, tried to escape the clutches of the Soviet Union in 1968, uh, there was a, a, an invasion, uh, the same as happened in Hungary in 1956, and all Eastern Europe was essentially uh, part of the Soviet Empire. Very, very interesting and consequential indeed. Uh, let's fast forward a couple of decades and head to Portugal in April 1974. Uh, Moita, what are the key differences here? I mean, the key difference here would be um, the, you could say, the consequence of the Czechoslovakia coup and the consequences of the Portugal coup in '74. Because in, in the Czechoslovak case, we see that um, the coup happens and um, authoritarian rule comes to dominate uh, Czechoslovakia until uh, uh, almost the end of the Cold War. But then in Portugal, we see this coup actually uh, taking out uh, the authoritarian regime and, re, uh, and ushering in uh, Portugal's transition to democracy. But at the same time, there are other features that you could say distinguish this coup from the Portugal coup from uh, the Czechoslovakia coup, because in the case of Portugal, we see a coup taking place within this broader context of um, decolonization in, in, in Africa and Southeast Asia and the implications of that coup uh, when it comes to what happens to uh, Portugal's uh, former colonies, uh, Mozambique so, and Angola. Mozambique. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting, and then it has huge ramifications in Africa as well as in Portugal itself. Exactly, exactly. So what happens is the coup happens uh, in Portugal. Uh, the the new regime in Portugal decides to um, leave Mozambique and Angola and and the other uh, Portuguese colonies. Uh, and in Mozambique and Angola, particularly, we see this power struggle that emerges in these two countries resulting in civil wars, civil wars that end up uh, attracting interventions from the US, the Soviet Union, Cuba, and, and South Africa. And so you, you have you know, civil wars uh, resulting from uh, what happened in Portugal, attracting all these actors, uh, all these key actors during the Cold mm. War. It's in, you know, Michael, this was such a moment in the history of Western Europe. You know, Salazar had been in power from 1932, 1968, such a dominant figure and his authoritarian regime. Obviously, he's he's out of office because of um, he's incapacitated by, incapacitated by a stroke by 1968. But this 
you know, such a huge moment, such a watershed moment for Europe. It was wonderful. I was there. I reported it. I remember they overthrew Caetano. Uh, and it was led by an extremely unlikely uh, coup leader, General Spinola, who was a monocle general of the old school. But he just realised that fighting the colonial wars in Mozambique and Angola forever and ever was never going to work and that Portuguese uh, forces were being drained. Uh, he, he took the decision to get rid of the uh, fascist government, as it then was. Uh, and it was a good coup. Um, People were rejoicing in the streets. It was also bloodless. Mm. There was almost nobody killed, certainly not within Portugal. Um, there were soldiers uh, with carnations in their rifles. They called it the Carnation Revolution. Yeah, yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was a summer of yeah, it was a summer of chaos. Nobody quite knew what was happening, and the communists tried to take advantage of that to uh, turn Portugal into a communist state. And there was a slightly precarious moment where the Communist Party of Portugal was making a key effort to dominate the political scene, but the Americans took a fairly firm line on that and then it, it moved into a more democratic phase and luckily that coup, the, the good coup as it were, was never reversed. Democracy took hold. It's very interesting. You know, and it's not always an easy transition from a forceful taking of power to a stable democracy thereafter, is it? No, very often it goes completely wrong. You often get either a counter-coup or you get people in charge who say, oh, yes, yes, we're going to move to democracy, and they never do. And uh, we've seen that, for example, in Sudan, mm. uh, where they got rid of uh, uh, Bashir, a nasty uh, tyrant, uh, and uh, the military junta that took power uh, said they were going to open it up to democracy. There was a brief period when they did. But they haven't. And in fact, what's happened is now we've got a civil war in Sudan as various uh, rival military factions are, are vying for power. Well, let's talk about some more surprising coups. Mawita, you've picked out the Zimbabwean coup against Robert Mugabe in November 2017. Remind us of what happened there. So what happens here is uh, Robert Mugabe uh, had been in power since 1980. Uh, and uh, as many of us uh, uh, may be aware, in the beginning, people thought this individual was truly committed to democracy. But then, as it turned out, this wasn't the case. And so what happens as he gets older is uh, Mugabe begins to think about who would replace him. Mm. Um, and so there was uh, a faction within the, the ruling ZANU-PF, the, the Zimbabwean uh, African National Union Party, that supported Mugabe's wife, uh, Grace Mugabe, to take over power. Whereas there was another faction that actually was in favor of someone else. Um, one of these other persons happened to be uh, uh, Mugabe's deputy, Emerson Mnagagwa, the current vice president. Oh, sorry, the current president. Uh, at the time, he's vice president. Um, and Mugabe, for whatever reason, decides to fire uh, Mnagagwa. Um, and within a week, uh, Mnangagwa's supporters within the armed forces staged this coup. Uh, and they went out of their way, um, if, if you followed the, the events at the time, they went out of their way to not label this a coup, right? to try and talk mm. about how this is uh, a replacement, Mugabe is resigning. In fact, they went, uh, um, they went to court and had one of the courts in Zimbabwe rule that Mugabe, uh, uh, the ousting of Mugabe was, was actually legal. So you have these events taking place that somehow are surprising because I mean, no one was expecting Mugabe to uh, uh, having to have lost control of the narrative. Yeah, his control particular... of Zimbabwe had been so total for so long, and that's exactly. why it was such a surprising exactly. moment. Um, Michael, let's talk about another surprising cue, staying on the continent of Africa. What did Mark Thatcher, what did he get ah, to this was an extraordinary in one. Equatorial Guinea? Let, let's hear briefly from Mark Thatcher. 
Can we hear from Mark well, I know you've all been in Cork the last three days listening uh, attentively to what's been going on. Um, having heard the arguments of both sides, um, I, remain co- I remain confident in the merits of um, the application that I've made and I will uh, await with interest and attentively for the judgment of the court. What on earth went on here, Michael? Well, this was an extraordinary thing. In fact, it, it pretty well followed that novel, uh, The Dogs of War, which was about the overthrow of a government in a tiny, small West African country that at the time was impoverished, now turns out to be extremely rich. It was an attempt to overthrow the government of Equatorial Guinea, um, little tiny place, but uh, subsequently proved to have masses of oil. And Mark Thatcher uh, and various others were um, sponsoring uh, an armed attempt. I mean, I have to say the government in Equatorial Guinea was rotten to the core, so it was ripe for toppling. Uh, And in fact, when they did. Um, there was a coup, but uh, it, it didn't work. Uh, and Mark Thatcher and various others uh, were arrested. Well, certainly some of his associates, I don't think he was arrested at the time, is plotted in South Africa. And um, uh, uh, several of them went to prison. They, went, they were imprisoned in Equatorial Guinea in not very nice circumstances at all. Uh, but the whole thing collapsed. Uh, and in the end, um, Equatorial Guinea, uh, they've got, I mean, they had their own government, but Thatcher was deeply embarrassed by his association with these plotters. And it just goes to show that often coups are driven from the outside by people with external interests in those countries. Can you just tell us briefly, Michael, before we take a short break, what it was like to be in, in Moscow in 1991 when, as you said earlier, Mikhail Gorbachev's, uh, the coup against Mikhail Gorbachev failed? Yes, I wasn't actually... In there, uh, I wasn't there at the time, but I had reported from outside. I'd been in Moscow for a long time before that. I subsequently returned after that, but I followed it very closely. And it was an extraordinary situation where um, the Soviet armed forces had always been utterly reliable and utterly subservient to the leadership. Gorbachev was on holiday in the Crimea, and a number of coup plotters, including the head of the uh, KGB, as it then was, uh, decided that he was uh, losing his grip and that the Soviet Union was in danger of breaking up because he had promised various uh, independence or autonomy to some of the various republics. And he was sort of trapped in his, in his villa down, uh, down on the Black Sea coast. Mm. Uh, and this lot took control, but they were utterly incompetent. They didn't know what they were doing. And the one person who stood up to them was Boris Yeltsin, who was at the time uh, party leader in Moscow. And he stood on top of a tank in, in the central Moscow and he rallied people around him. And in the end, the... the, the armed forces that they'd tried to send in to keep control of Moscow just sort of fizzled away. I mean, it just never happened. And then the the plotters, after three days, they more or less uh, lost their nerve, and the whole thing was over. Gorbachev made a triumphant return to Moscow. Didn't last long, I'm afraid. He Mm. was out of power within a few, well, within a few weeks, because Yeltsin was clearly the man of the moment. Now, one person who has experienced a coup as it is happening is Catherine Filt, the Times' diplomatic correspondent. She was working as a journalist in Cambodia in 1997 when one half of its government overthrew the other. This is what happened. It was, um, it was the 5th of July, I think, and the night before we'd been to a 4th of July party at the American Embassy, which was quite leery. And so I think I might have had a slightly thick head that morning. And something was happening in the streets of Phnom Penh. Um, I think we got a phone call saying that, yeah, there were tanks by by the airport. When we got outside, my, my boyfriend of the time and myself, we could see that the, there were people in the streets, just just everyone was leaving their homes and, and sort of getting out of the city. And it sort of looked like something out of, out of the 
film of the killing fields when everyone was deported from the city. And people were getting out of the city because there were tanks in the streets and there was gunfire. And so still not really comprehending what was going on, um, we headed to the offices of the Cambodia Daily, which is where I worked at the time, and a newspaper in Phnom Penh, um, which was housed in in an, a former brothel from the UN peacekeeping era. We headed there to to meet our colleagues and try and figure out what was going on. And it would, in fact, turn out to be a coup where one side of the government was trying to oust the other because it was a it was a sort of power sharing. Um, imagine a really nasty breakdown between Nick Clegg and uh, David Cameron. And <laughs> With added really... tanks. <laughs> With tanks. And that was what we were looking at. Um, it wasn't your conventional coup where, you know, the military come in and try and get rid of someone. It was two sides of the same government, uh, a coalition government, who who went up against each other. Wow. So you're in the office, in the old mm. brothel. You're thinking, I mean, how does one even begin to cover a coup? Because then surely everything's in everything's in flux, including your ability to do your job and everything is is up in the air, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean it was absolutely bizarre. You know, so so we we sent teams out to do what they could. It was very difficult because so for example, you know, that there were the way you got around Phnom Penh at this time in 1997 was y- you would get on a moto taxi. Uh, so like it's a motorbike taxi. And obviously most of those had also were also either leaving the city or had gone undercover. So that was quite difficult. We, you know, we were, we were going out in sort of tag teams of tr- and just trying to find out what we could from the ground. And also calling people we knew in the military, in the government, and you know, trying to get their accounts of what was happening. I remember calling one one general who uh, started to talk to me, and then said, "Oh wait, I've got to go. Um, you know, someone's shooting at me." And uh, I mean, it sounds farcical, but it it was quite serious. And we ended up at one point with a gunfight going on along the street outside of our office. Uh, where there were, the, 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 I mean, there was a tank at one end of it and there were gunmen sort of behind trees in that street who were then taking pot shots at one another. And we ended up like getting, for some reason, there were mattresses in our office. And I don't know why that is. I'm pretty sure they weren't right back from the brothel days, but we were putting those up against the the glass in the office to make sure that no bullets, stray bullets came in. And we when we ba- we essentially all moved into the office for a week because we we really didn't have um, freedom of movement across the city, so uh, we all stayed in the office for about a week, wow. wearing the same clothes. Yeah, pretty and, nasty. And presumably, when you're ringing your top contacts during a coup, you know, one <laughs> some of them are being shot at, but presumably you're ringing people who would otherwise be very very high up within a government who are about as clueless as you are as to what's going to happen in the next hour, the next day whether they'll still have jobs or indeed still be alive this time tomorrow. Yeah, they didn't have much forward um, information, That that's for sure. Um, it was really more dynamic than that. We were trying to figure out what was just happening at the time. Yeah. Uh, so how did the coup end and what did that mean for you? Yeah, so it, I mean, it ended with, uh, with the, so there were two prime ministers. This was the, the bizarre, I mean, you know, talk about an oxymoron there was a first prime minister and a second prime minister 
<laughs> the first prime minister was also um, a prince. Again, you couldn't make this stuff up. Prince Ranarid. And the second prime minister was Hun Sen. And this was a power sharing agreement that had come about because the, um, you know, the UN brokered elections had brought uh, the Royalist Party to power and Hun Sen sort of couldn't handle that. And so they had to kind of broker something. So he managed to kick out Prince Ranarit, who then fled overseas. He took control of the country and is still in charge today, all that time later. The coup sort of, it it, it did kind of very abruptly end three days in. It, it actually came about very fast. And we were all slightly sort of left wondering what that was. And, and and there was no consensus at the time about whether we could call it a coup or not, because it was one part of the government against another. So this uh, bizarre um, euphemism arose in, uh, in Phnom Penh, where we called it les événements, um, <laughs> <laughs> which I think was also used about les événements of uh, 1968 in Paris. Uh, but that's course. what it became known until the UN conclusively called it a coup later that year. It was really, now we we have a bit of perspective to look back on. It was really the beginning of the end for Cambodian democracy. So there you have it. That is how you stage a coup. And now you know the most consequential in world history. You heard there from Dr. Mawiti Chacha from Birmingham University, Michael Binion, Catherine Phil and Jane Flanagan from The Times. That's all we got time for on today's podcast. I'll be back tomorrow for my final podcast of the fortnight. You don't want to miss that. But in the meantime, make sure you like, share, subscribe and follow wherever you get yours from. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.